what conditions are stipulations. Such an iconic speech, but it's one of the more absurd. I don't know if it was scripted. I don't know if a speechwriter sat down and told JFK this is going to be a dynamite line. So, 50th anniversary of the moon landing this week. America's J- eyes are all on JFK. Oh, yes. And him inviting the country to come along on this journey with him of getting to the moon within 10 years. He goes, We plan to go to the moon in this decay and do the other thing. And do the other things. So I was like, right after you told me this, I thought of Trump's tweet, which was, for all the money we are spending, NASA should not be talking about going to the moon. We did that 50 years ago. They should be focused on much bigger things we are doing, including Mars, of which the moon is part. Defense and science, exclamation point. No, did he say that? This is a real tweet. Of which the moon is part. Well, coherent thought, and weirdly on the same page with Kennedy in terms of the doing the other things. What are the other things? Mars, uh, which Mars. the moon is part. That is a hard thing. Because he goes out, he's like, and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Honestly, I do feel like he just forgot his line. Right? He was like, we're going to I hope go it wasn't written down. And I really hope it wasn't. Do the other things. Yeah. I feel like, like when I panic, moon. my first response is like, and we'll also do other things do other stuff that is hard <laughs> thank you <laughs> so that is memorialized in history do you feel inspired oh yeah he kind of plays it off well good order you can say the other things and get me nodding along I'm like all right yeah that's a kind of thing though yeah. jfk he just had a cadence it just it flows and then you have to do a double take wait what did you say we were also gonna do the things because that challenge is one we intend to win, and the others too. All right, Slicker. But we do want to give a shout out to the moon humans who moon landed. Moon humans. I was reading this tweet thread about uh, pooping in space. <laughs> All right. And how difficult it is. And basically, you have to like strap a, a sandwich bag Ooh. to your butthole. Poop consistency would really make a big difference in that endeavor. Also, without gravity, it, I'm so sorry. This is so gross. I guess content warning for poop. You can't really have a content warning because everybody does it. You know so what? nobody's immune. It is the great equalizer of content. But in zero gravity, it doesn't just detach. For a while, they used a vacuum where, just where guys it. would just oh, put their... Oh, no. You would get a rectal prolapse. Oh, for the front end. Oh, yeah. No. It was I like... thought you meant up to the rump. No. Ooh, yeah. That's no, a they reverse would... enema, I think. <laughs> a reverse enema. Politics. Oh, no. We talk about politics on this show. Welcome to Exceedingly Persuasive. I'm Brooke Rogers. And I'm Mackenzie Brennan, and we usually don't talk about poop. But I think it's going to be a new segment. Yeah, just to get you warmed up. <laughs> We're ladies. <laughs> yes, okay. indeed. Well, so we wanted this... to reintroduce ourselves oh, yeah. for those of you who may not know us and are not our moms and friends. So I'm Mackenzie, as stated. I am a court attorney for the New York Supreme Court. I used to TA constitutional law one and two and criminal law. I love my cats more than life and foster for the ASPCA sometimes. 
And you keep all the cats you foster. And I want to kiss them all on their little snoots. On their little snoots. My name is Brooke Rogers. I am a sometimes writer. Most days I copy edit, which is also fun. But I write for New York Post um, and a, a bevy of other places. And I'm very invested in politics, as you can probably tell. And poop. And poop. I guess I did want to say really quickly, please fund space travel. Please fund NASA. Back when the moon landing happened, NASA used to be 4% of the budget, which is already very little. Now it is 0.5% of the federal budget. It influences all sorts of things. Telecommunications, because satellites obviously come from space travel. That's how we innovated that. All sorts of textiles and plastics and different techniques for growing things and different techniques for vacuuming your feces and we gotta food f- development. We have to live on Mars someday, which is part of the moon. So please, just like we all agree that funding the arts is a good idea, even when you can't see the direct, immediate, savior of humanity sort of impact, please fund science because it's so important and we're falling behind. We only care about it when, like in the Cold War, there's an immediate military supremacy pissing contest that we can connect to it. But that's, that's just my pitch. We gotta find the aliens before the aliens yeah, find us. See, that's that's my thought process. We wanna get them too. Um, I mean, the Trump administration is putting $2 billion into Space Force Space over Force. the next five years. You know what? Fine. So. See, again, you can only do it if it has a military connection. Fine, fine, fine. Do it. Whatever Space it takes. Force. Spaceforce.com. I'm actually fine with that. So this week, we're going to talk about, we mentioned the moon landing. We're going to talk about Ted Kennedy leading a woman in a lake to die. The darker end of the Kennedy spectrum. (laughs) Real dark. Yeah. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the death of Justice Stevens and Brexit. And then cover some of what we should be watching for with the Mueller testimony later this week. And the last two stories, by the time you hear this, will have evolved drastically, as things do, from the time that we recorded this on the 22nd, because there's an election coming up in the UK. Tomorrow is the election. And uh, Mueller's testifying on Wednesday. So So we're just going to try to give you context to each of those things. A primer, some cliff notes about what to look back on, what to mull over, no pun intended, (laughs) with that in the rearview mirror. All right, guys, before we dive into the topics this week, last week I talked a lot about about Jeffrey Epstein and the timeline of his crimes, essentially. (laughs) His life, his crimes, one and the same. The life and crimes of Jeffrey Epstein. (laughs) For that timeline, I used a lot from an article by Sarah Boblitz. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but she wrote for the Huffington Post and she put together an amazing timeline. We added, we took a little bit from that, we added a bit to that, but I wanted to credit her because I meant to do that in the last episode. And of course, we talked about crediting Women female journalists, journalists Heck yeah. who had been pursuing the story and putting the story together. So definitely want to credit task her. At many points. Absolutely. Also, the Vanity Fair writer I mentioned last week who tried to write about Jeffrey Epstein's abuse in 2003 and who said that her editor at the time, Graydon Carter, edited the accusations out. Uh, Her name was Vicki Ward, and I want just a little update on that. She said that the accusations were edited out after Jeffrey Epstein visited the Condé Nast offices and spoke to Graydon Carter directly. Carter denies this and said she didn't have the sources to back up the claims. Again, two girls and their mother came forward, but he said she didn't have the material she needed. Um, you said three sources was three the sources, I, and I believe that's three sources on top of the accusers. Which, so, Brooke, you and I were talking a little bit before we recorded about how absurd that is in sexual assault because just like there's the issue 
in legal contexts about adapting this really sensitive field and traumatic experience to an industry that has such strict requirements. You can't ask of a young teenage accuser to have told three credible adults at the time who could confirm her story. And short of that, it's all hearsay and secondhand anyways, not to mix the industries. But. So you can absolutely dive into each accusation and try to find as much evidence as you can. Yeah, but there is a point it. when you have to report it. I, I, I think that you absolutely have to do your due diligence. Uh, and I think that that's journalistic ethics. But, but that might take a different form for this kind of story. Right. Just make sure that you're explaining that these are accusations and... The story could have come out a lot earlier had people been a little bit more open to the idea of publishing these things. And it kind of does back up her story that it was edited out for other reasons. Absolutely. I think today... Pretty sus. There would be, it'd be much more likely that they would have been published. So yeah, I just wanted to clarify that really quick. By that, Graydon. And one other thing that we would be remiss not to mention this week, and really does not take a whole lot to reprimand and discuss and dismiss... As I'm sure you all are aware, if you have been looking at anything... It's been pretty omnipresent lately. (sighs) Trump oozed out a tweet around last week that told four freshman Democratic congresswomen to go back to where they came from. And these four women were Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashada Tlaib... Ilhan Omar and Alanya Presley, right? Ayana. So um, these are women who are new to Congress, and he sees them as a threat, and they have been. They all are women of color. They're all citizens. Three of them were born here. The fourth fled violence as a refugee. Somalia, I believe. Somalia, yeah, as a refugee. And she actually has been here longer than Melania Trump has. So let's not pretend that this is about anything but racism. He went on to bask in his supporters saying send her back about Ilhan Omar at a rally he told which is different than saying leave absolutely and also um, I mean they're they're shades of gray in a mm. disgusting field but go back versus send back one is forceful one is uh, <laughs> a request of sorts the far right uses phrases like send her back or go back if you don't like it leave it Get out of or here go back to where you came from against people of color, especially immigrants of color all the time. And in fact, the federal government even acknowledges that go back to where you came from. The EEOC, um, the Equal Employment Commission, which is the office for federal discrimination claims, says that that is a prime example of discrimination based on national origin or race. Saying go back to where you came from is... Or it's acknowledged as discrimination. Yeah, it's people. it's an example. It's a textbook example, and by textbook, federal legal example. But uh, did think that news networks did a great job of taking him to task when I I don't know that they usually do. This was a nice stark example when he said, "Well, I didn't like that chant at the rallies. I started speaking very quickly. I tried to shut it down right away." And a couple different networks juxtaposed mm-hmm. that with a clock counting out 13 seconds while he basked in the chant. And did not start speaking yeah, immediately. Yeah, he didn't shut it down. But, you know, I have seen people on the right and some conservatives saying that this is disgusting. I've also seen people Good. defend it. It's one of those Please situations. It. it shouldn't be a partisan issue. It's indefensible. It's just, it's the kind of rhetoric that you would expect from the far right. It, we're the, better the than president that of the United States. Even saying Please. that, we're better than that. It's like, <laughs> I think that the ideals we were founded on are better than that. But I think that we need to aspire to what we could be and what America yeah. should be. We're at a turning point and we'll see. <laughs> Sometimes I just want to remind people 
what they're saying and that it's not consistent with even what they feel. I, mm-hmm. I think a lot of my family members are very right wing. And when I see some of the things that they're parroting, it, it helps to bring them back and say, wait, 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 you know that I am this or mm-hmm. your sister is this. You're better than this. You don't think that. Being a patriot does not mean don't subscribing to any talking points that either the administration in power or the party that you agree with parrots the right does not have a monopoly on patriotism and in fact dissent is often patriotic equal offending skepticism and dissent let's just you can love america and also criticize america because a great form of love that's what parents do (laughs) yeah and you can love america and understand that we are not always right let's get to right okay you know yeah so speaking of american values and Uh, This week was the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, and it was also the 50th anniversary of the death of Mary Jo Kopechny. Mary Jo Kopechny was a 28-year-old campaign specialist and former assistant to Bobby Kennedy. She met then-Senator Ted Kennedy at a party on July 18th, 1969. They left the party together around midnight, and around 12.40 in the morning, Ted Kennedy drove his car off a bridge and into Chappaquiddick. It's technically a peninsula. I'm going to call it a lake just for ease. It's a body of water. It's a body of water. It's a little body of water that was enough to submerge a car. We should talk about the bridge, too. It was a bridge, I guess, mostly used by local traffic, and it didn't have any guardrails. It it was poorly lit, so we'll at least grant him that. Um, There are some reports that he was intoxicated when he left the party. Those were never confirmed. um, But just want to hard to confirm that. Yeah, (laughs) nine hours later. (laughs) Uh, So I I personally, I think it's probably likely they were drinking at the party. Yeah. So I'm gonna assume that 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 he was intoxicated. It's a campaign party. He waited consciously. Uh, They left early in the morning aka he midnight. was sober as a judge <laughs> yes so because that's the kennedy thing oh yeah teetotalers they are All they always walk the mm-hmm. line so they drive into the lake ted kennedy escapes the car he says that he tried to dive back in and save mary joe wasn't able to and swam to shore by his account of valiant effort to save her that's completely Many his dives. account oh yes so i you can take that with a grain of salt. He said he tried to save her and wasn't able to and left. So this is the part of the story that I believe Ted Kennedy stopped caring about Mary Jo entirely and started being concerned with how exactly. it was going to look. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's also say he was 47 years old. He, I think he was 37. Was I mean, same difference, but he was... Okay, um, he was an adult man. He, he was, was old enough to know better. Right. We're not talking about a teenager. Not that it makes a whole lot of difference in terms of how wrong it was, but he was not a young kid who didn't know any better. So he gets out of the lake and starts walking back to the cabin, passes several houses where he could have knocked and tried to contact police. Instead, he opted to go back to the party and then went and told two other men. Again, I'm using his account. He says he contacted two other men at the party who were friends. So this is the best case scenario. This is the best case scenario. He said he went back. Either way, he ended up at the hotel. He went to the front desk and complained of noisy neighbors at 2.40. So we actually have that documented from somebody that's not him. Yes. Um, Again, at any point in time, he could have called the police or an ambulance. And then he went to bed and spent the night in his hotel room. Or even outsourced the responsibility to someone else. 
I mean, tell the concierge. Hey, by the way, what's horrifying about this is that the way that Mary Jo was found indicates she did not die immediately. <sighs> she could have died anywhere within an hour to several hours later. The car was flipped over, and the way she was found, it seemed like she was trying to get to a pocket of air <laughs> at the top of the car. And so had he stopped at any point and called the police there is a chance that she would have survived. Instead, she spent her last hours terrified, trapped, and suffocating. So Ted Kennedy, uh, his mistress Helga Wagner, said he called her at 8 a.m. and asked for the number of Stephen Smith, who was known as a family fixer. Oh, boy. Um, Around 8.30 a.m., two local men who were fishing reported the car to police. The responding officer realized the car belonged to Ted Kennedy and called the station when he was notified that Kennedy was already there. This was about eight or so hours after the accident. So at some point between eight when when Ted Kennedy called Helga and 8.30, he went to police. Mary Jo's body was pulled out of the car. Obviously, she had died by that point. Um, Ted Kennedy pleaded guilty to fleeing the scene of an accident, causing personal injury. (laughs) He was sentenced to two months in jail, which the judge immediately suspended. Uh, and then as punishment for contributing to the death of a bright 28-year-old woman, Ted was elected to the Senate seven more times. <laughs> it's, it's reprehensible. It's, uh, I, I think I just I want to know, and um, obviously this happened 50 years ago, and it's an old story, but it is incredibly sanitized. We, we call it the Chappaquiddick incident. We don't really talk about how it happened, and we don't talk about how his negligence contributed to her death. In fact, I think a lot of people don't fully know the story they think it was you know a horrible accident that couldn't have been avoided and then his actions um, are kind of scrubbed a little bit and that's why i brought it up um you know he was an adult man his best excuse i think was that he was in shock after which yeah fine shock is a real thing Mm -hmm. we've all been through trauma and, and certainly the kennedys have been through a lion's share but that doesn't doesn't last for nine hours and long walks around and right. complains about noise and then consciously Calls calling to your mistress. <laughs> calling your mistress and then consciously calling the family fixer. That's very intentional. That's not, uh, I'm paralyzed. And the fact that she maybe could have survived, did survive for a, a while, just waiting I, for that, it's, it's a nightmare. It's everybody's worst nightmare. And she did nothing wrong. And I think that if you're in that car and you keep expecting him to come back or it, help to come. Who wouldn't call the he police? He got away. Of course. He's bringing back help. Thank goodness. He got out. Yeah. He can go get somebody. Yeah. It's disgusting how much pull the, the family had in the wake of, I think Bobby had recently died at this mm-hmm. point. Because Bobby, I believe, was 68. Another reason why she had every reason to trust this family because she had worked for Bobby's campaign and Bobby arguably, with the exception of the sisters who weren't really given the opportunity Mm -hmm. to succeed, Bobby was the best that that you could get from that family. He was moral. He seemed to be on the right side of a lot of issues way before his time. She probably believed the sun rose and set with them. But uh, I don't know. I, I think save for the anniversary happening, I get so wary about... The focus that seems to, it seems to often come from conservatives about bad men in the past of the Democratic Party, because um, it was in 69. Um, I, I think that the criticism of Ted Kennedy is absolutely warranted. I don't have any illusions or middle ground about him being culpable, but beyond the anniversary and that, mm-hmm. I, it's distinctive. I wish I didn't feel like in the political context, this particular story wasn't accessorized to create disparate standards for 
how we right. judge the parties, how far back we look, how we judge the people within the parties in a current sense. Right. I don't think this is one of those contexts, but I wish mm -hmm. that this one person who is dead and has been dead for a while wasn't still the blight on the party to distract whenever a current Republican does ill. No, and, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I think that it's a story that right-wingers throw around a lot when they don't want to address the ugliness in their own party. Yeah, even hearkening back, kind of like we were talking about last week with Epstein, that somehow this is seen as more damning to Bill Clinton, who, by the way, is not president anymore, yeah. hasn't been for a while. <sighs> Bill Clinton I, has been out of, out of power for many, many a years. A long time. But you think about the focus that the Republican Party has had on the Clintons, mm -hmm. whether it be that or Hillary Clinton being the subject of chance well into Trump's presidency. It's right. like, dude, she does not hold public office. She didn't win. Uh, it seems like a tactic and brought up to cocaine. And then I think of, you know, Laura Bush killed somebody in a car accident. Mm -hmm. That was not talked about nearly as much, and it was more recent. Nixon beat his wife. Dick Cheney, but for the grace of God, didn't kill somebody. He shot his friend in the face and neck and chest while in office, mm -hmm. and the guy had a heart attack and ended up apologizing to Cheney. And I'm not saying... I. I hate to even engage in this too okay sort of, yeah, but you did this. Like whataboutism. Yeah, but that I feel that that's the context in which the likes of Ted Kennedy and Bill Clinton are often brought up is, mm -hmm. yeah, but there was a bad Democrat once, so how can you criticize this Republican serving in office who did a bad thing now? Yeah. And that gives me pause. I think the frustration personally, and I, I do understand the bad faith ways that people like Ted Kennedy and Bill Clinton are used, um, even though I think that they personally are deserving of criticism. Absolutely. The frustration that I experience is when I see even today, words are used in certain ways to remove the culpability. Mm. Of like, the coverage of the 50th anniversary, like I think they said like, you know, the, the car went off the road and, hmm. and he escaped and like she died. Like passive voice. Kind yeah, of, it's kind right. of this. And again, even, you know, the Chappaquiddick incident, the way that we An use incident, terms that are, than, yeah. exactly, the way that we use terms that are sort of benign. And I think that we're allowing them even posthumously yeah. to get away with, again, he didn't go to jail. He didn't go to prison. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people say, well, he was going to become president, but he spent. He deserved to yeah. lose that opportunity. Yes. He lost it himself. And yeah. so that's kind of what bothers me when we look back on it with half-shut eyes. It's like the argument about rapists that a lot of judges make for low sentences, but he's such a good guy. And that happened Except recently. For, yeah, yeah, you see that, yeah, you see that once a week where and judges so, say, he's from a good family, he has a bright future. He's a great guy, except that he did this one thing, just like saying, oh, Ted Kennedy would have been president, but that he did this one. He he's did from a good though. family. Honey. Yeah. <laughs> and that's uh, uh, even though I and completely a, understand warranted criticism absolutely yeah. obviously it, it thrives in a lot of gendered situations and a lot of socioeconomic situations the, there's no excuse for this I, I think know. we should learn from this mistake yeah. and hold people who are currently in office to a very high standard and hold them accountable but it I think that this is a problem that has come up so much in the Me Too era and with so many of these legacies that we're grappling with, even though this is not a new revelation mm -hmm. by any means. Researching Ted Kennedy, it kind of plays into your point a bit about how this is about him mm -hmm. and not about her yeah. and how the coverage is about him. But it's such a complex thing in general in looking into this. How do you separate the good parts of the legacy from the bad? And I remember a couple of years ago, it was pre-Trump, but we were starting to have this conversation of, Let's get rid of the name from this interstate highway in Virginia. Let's get rid mm -hmm. of these Confederate statues. 
I want to say it was Brian Stevenson, who's a lawyer, and I think he was on NPR talking about this very issue that, okay, the founding fathers were terrible. Uh, just about everybody that you can picture who predates, I don't know, now, mm -hmm. is going to be found at fault for some reason. So how do we celebrate anybody? And he said, let's think of what their main contribution to legacy is. So Confederates, just racism. Yeah. I mean, they rose up to for, protect yes. the institution of slavery. Advocating for institutional racism, and that's why we're celebrating them. Whereas uh, Ben Franklin, we celebrate him and remember him. We should discuss the flaws, absolutely, but we don't remember him for the sexism, for the substance abuse, for what, you know, probably for every white man at that point was racism. And I think that is a good Way barometer to, almost yeah yeah it's been useful for me for somebody like ted kennedy it's tough because he did a lot of good and a lot of ill like I, he was the one who introduced the ada mm -hmm. he like we were saying a couple of weeks ago he was the one who got the u.s to accede to that refugee protection act he protected health insurance for special needs people for children for families mm -hmm. he protected women's contraception and he was one of the first ones to come out in favor of lgbt rights and mm -hmm. marriage like yeah i i think my response to that would do be that? can appreciate the effects that he had the yeah. good effects that he had on society well also considering what mary Jo kopechny could have contributed had she lived that's her a very life. good point yeah and i think that who would she have been yeah who what what she, might she have contributed had she been able to live out her years and i think that you don't have to take people as you don't have to take people as a whole it's not picture. a binary yeah it's not but how do i reckon with I don't know how to navigate I think this. we continue like, to talk about their flaws, especially, you know, when it's something this huge. Um, but do I we acknowledge the good? That's a tough question. I think so. I think that it's, do we then just celebrate the whole person and say, well, the mm. good outdid the bad? Maybe or do not we the say person, but the, the outcomes. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think we can celebrate the outcomes while saying this person did something incredibly detrimental. You almost could even connect them and say, well, if he is trying to reform himself, at least these were some good outcomes that came of that effort. At least and I think this is just the, the fundamentally, life. this is what humans are. Extremely flawed beings. Hopefully none of us will be as extreme in the negative direction, but you're yeah. right. Yeah, and I'm not, again, I'm not... We contain multitudes. We can, we do. <laughs> um, with, with Ted Kennedy, I think even with all the good he's done... I, hope, I see this as one of the biggest parts of his legacy. The, as you should. I think that we don't have, we can acknowledge that he did good things while not weighing it against her life. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I, I certainly would never intend to pit them against each other in the sense that I grapple in my mind with how do we remember this person in light of knowing both of those things? Like, how do we confront it? And I the same thing with so many things, whether it be Woody Allen or mm -hmm. John Lennon, I, Neither of them being murderers, as far as yeah. we know. But things as that, far as we know. Uh, yeah, right. But people whose art matters to you or whose impact on the policy world matters to you, but who you cannot abide as a person for very concrete reasons that probably do more harm to at least one person than all the good that they've done. I don't know. It's a hard I analysis to make. listening to the people they've affected or the people they've abused or the people they've hurt. Or the stories of those people. And not idolizing them. I think that, yeah, I think part of the important. conversation that makes this so difficult is that we are a culture that loves to idolize, put them on pedestals. And a lot of the time, 
that's really damaging because and it's never accurate nobody nobody's full villain nobody's full hero right and so I think that one of the reasons why we have such a hard time talking about people's mistakes and people's flaws is because we hate acknowledging the darker sides it gets back to what you were saying with Trump that don't blindly accept just because you know you like this person or you know you like Mm -hmm. the ideology that you will take everything they say as gospel don't ever do that don't yeah and cult of personality are very dangerous and with a lot of these these artists like woody allen a lot of the abuse and and ted kennedy as well all the damage they did Hmm. is erased because we're so obsessed with the idea of perfect people and retaining the benefit that we can keep from them yeah. Like, we don't want to lose that, and that's... That's why R. Kelly... That's why it took so long for yes. R. Kelly to be arrested. That's why it took so long for... I walked my kindergarten graduation to I Believe I Can Fly. And, you know, now you have to forget so about it. So now I will shut my eyes. I will shut my eyes to any accusation. Well, no, I think that it's... I think it's not about separating the art from the artist. I think it's about having honest conversations about what it means to be human and actually elevating the voices of people that they've harmed listening to them and maybe a new lens for the art when you listen to the Beatles songs that talk about like I used to be cruel to my woman I beat her oh oh boy take that you know as at its at face value and the Woody Allen movies where he is cutesy with young women oh geez that like I, I think that actually could invite the conversation more but we're Again, digressing. Yeah, we're digressing. Um, well, to move on to somebody with a much less challenging, complex legacy, Justice John Paul Stevens died this week, and that is just... Actually, a couple legal giants died this last week. Morgan Thau was the DA, the longest-serving DA in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. He died today, just like a week short of his 100th birthday, and he was an incredible lion of the legal profession. So just want to give him a shout-out. But Justice Stevens was a relic of a an era that existed within my lifetime, but now already seems quaint, mm-hmm. with less political division. He retired in 2010, right? Yeah, I believe he was replaced by Justice Kagan. Yes, that's um, right. And he was appointed by Gerald Ford who was a Republican. That's amazing to me. I know. Wow. I mean, also just how long people sit on the Supreme Court He's, is I think, the second longest serving justice, and he retired electively, obviously, and wrote a book last year at, like, 94. Um, stayed pretty sharp. It's, it's so interesting to me hearing these justices who were appointed by Republican presidents and allowed themselves to be governed more by the law Mm-hmm. and by their own mind and what they were learning than party affiliation. I think it was a lot easier to do that when mm-hmm. the approval process was not so partisan, right. when a lot of these people were elected 98 to 2 right. or approved 98 to 2. It, it wasn't a party lines thing. And even his one of his most powerful opinions was a dissent in D.C. versus Heller, which is really the foundation for Second Amendment interpretation as it is now. I think it was... a 2009-ish, 2008 opinion that broke with precedent really drastically and was a very NRA-influenced perspective on the Second Amendment. And he quotes Chief Justice Berger, who was another Supreme Court appointee who was appointed by Nixon, and he said that the interpretation of the Second Amendment that allows does not allow regulation or views it as anything more than a well-regulated militia-based mm-hmm. right is the biggest piece of fraud 
in our national jurisprudential history, and this is somebody appointed by Nixon. Yeah. So, I mean, you got Ford, you got Nixon, say what you will about them, but certainly Republican presidents and the justices at least. I think that the reason why it's so partisan at this point is because people in power, the administration in power, see the Supreme Court nominees as a much more powerful tool tool yeah Mm -hmm. exactly many people say that trump won because scalia died yeah right before the election and i think that supreme court nominees were on a lot of people's minds i think that people maybe did not think of the judiciary as much as they do now and i don't think they did during the election uh at least on the on the left, I don't think a lot of people were considering the fact that this would impact not just the Supreme Court, but lower courts. Mm-hmm. Trump has more appointees to federal courts than anybody before him. Mm-hmm. And it will take, even if he were to get impeached and convicted tomorrow, it would take decades to undo the jurisprudential influence that he has. And then the yeah, I mean, lifetime of, Lifetime appointments, yeah. this is, they affect an entire generation you're not supposed to overrule precedent of a federal court that is above you uh so whether it be circuit to district supreme court to circuit without very very good reason and that's something that justice stevens actually talked about in heller is that there is no good reason to go back on what we have had as the interpretation of the second amendment from our country's founding to like 1980s yeah what would you say stevens legacy is as someone who is much more in touch with the legal side of things just looking up some of the tributes to him it's interesting that both sides had nice things to say about him and i it speaks to what you're saying about a different era of almost neutral judiciary a lot less activism and a lot less overt politicization um what they were saying nice about him they're very different things the fox news article talked about him dissenting in a first amendment case about burning the flag he did not want that to be an option really he He was against burning the flag yeah and he served in world war ii i believe so i Mm. think that generation particularly had such a connection to the symbolism and and to a really unified national interest and then other news media outlets talked about the fact that he actually developed his opinion on the death penalty that at the beginning he was pro death penalty and and towards the end he saw how it was applied and i don't know that he became overtly anti because he couldn't speak to that but in anything that crossed the docket it seemed to be that he was a lot more restrictive in how he was comfortable with it being applied and said that virtually everything was unconstitutional whether it be uh minors um less than capital crimes getting the death penalty people who are mentally handicapped getting the death penalty he was against all of that he was pro woman's right to choose he was against the citizens united decision he was against the heller decision he became pro very complicated person yeah Yeah. and i think willing to see what was happening during his time on the bench with a lot of these issues he became pro affirmative action in a soft sense which means not actively seeking people out and pulling them up but considering the fact that you know if you got a 2100 on your sat and you're white and this other person got a 1900 and they're black maybe considering that it's a lot harder for somebody from this neighborhood and with this racial background and without the tutors to get this score than it is for somebody with every opportunity 
and a lot of money and a lot of tutors who's white to get this score. Like, factoring yeah. it into the decision. I'd actually love to have a whole section about the idea of affirmative action. And, I mean, we've seen with the Aunt Becky, Lori <laughs> Laughlin saga. Oh, my how God. the same people who are very anti-affirmative action. Are very pro-paying their own. Yeah, it's a certain kind of action. Back alley. Certainly. Yeah. It's, it's putting people who maybe don't deserve to go to college in college by different means. Yeah. R.I.P. Justice Stevens. What a great man. And it was so endearing and not even to presume to feel anything cutesy about somebody who is such a humbling figure, but there are like stories about him having a female law clerk who was asked to go get coffee and him saying, you know, let me do it this time. I think it's my turn as a justice on the Supreme Court because he didn't like the the female law clerk getting asked and as somebody who is a female law clerk it's really nice to not that I've ever been put in that position I also have a wonderful judge but that's such a conscious thing Mm -hmm. and for an underling to be considered in that way and for him to be so aware of things like gender roles and also hearing him talk about the Heller decision and how he worked tirelessly to get his dissent out before the opinion because he thought that maybe once the justices really saw the impact that this decision would have, they might understand where he was coming from. Mm-hmm. And I so, think uh, it's also that we hear so many stories about egocentric, power-hungry, yes. or power-drunk judges and justices who genuinely think that like, they play God so right. often. We so often see those representations of justices yes. that or judges that I think that hearing about a judge who humbles himself, that's that's inspiring at least. It, so. Yeah, it, it maybe it feels naive to pretend that that's still an option my judge is is wonderful and so that uh, it exists still it's out there we need to talk about the good judges because we don't just want to hear about the bad ones so rest in peace justice stevens r.i.p justice stevens nary an ill word could be said uh so there isn't really even really a transition into this tomorrow is the conservative party in the uk's election they're deciding who will replace prime minister theresa may as she resigns in the wake of the shitstorm. can i say, i'm just gonna say this once i think that's the appropriate political that term. is yeah. brexit as we know about three years ago there was a referendum three years ago are you I serious know. oh Isn't my god insane? 2016 was a a year Ooh. about three years ago there was a referendum in the uk and the british people decided to a majority of the British people decided to leave the EU. Uh, Maybe without thinking of the ramifications, we don't know what they were thinking, but since then, the UK has been a bit of a mess. And (laughs) I did not fully understand Brexit for a long time. I knew that there was a lot of conflict going uh, on. Britain's exit. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I got you. So yeah, British exit, it's definitely happening. How it happens is up to whoever replaces anyone. Theresa May. Literally anyone. They're taking suggestions. The UK is a coalition government, which means that parties are elected. Candidates are not elected. So it's not like our system where you pick a person, pick a candidate, and elect them, and then they serve out their time, and then you know the next person can be from a, a different party. So Theresa May is, belongs to the Conservative Party. That sounds very polarizing. I imagine so. Speaking yeah, from a polarized country. <laughs> Especially when the UK has so many different parties. I think it's it's in the double digits. So June 23rd, 2016, the UK voted to leave the EU through via referendum. David Cameron stepped down immediately thereafter for pretty obvious reasons. And then <laughs> Theresa May took over as PM. Basically, 
the UK is trying to figure out how to leave, how to, how to exit the EU. There are two options. There's no deal Brexit, which would mean that they Parliament does not agree on a deal with so the just EU. Bail and a firestorm financially and interpersonally. They so the EU and the UK put together an agreement by which the UK would leave the EU. So many leavers argue that the deal leaves the UK too closely entangled with the EU, um, and some would prefer prefer no deal at all. Again, we've talked about the ramifications of that. Uh, if there's if there's no if there's no deal, then there's so much uncertainty about um, how it'll affect business, how it'll affect travel between the UK and other EU countries. It it would basically leave. A, a bevy of uncertainty in, in, in how the country will even, how the UK will even interact with uh, Europe and the rest of the world. Uh, Remainers say the agreement is far worse than the current membership terms and fails to deal properly with future relations. Theresa May tried to sell this deal to Parliament three times. It failed. And then Theresa May resigned. Uh, she's said that she would stay until they found a successor. So herein we are finding the successor. So it's between Jeremy Hunt and populist extraordinaire Boris Johnson. Baby Trump. Baby Trump. British journalist James oh. Butler wrote uh, yeah. an op-ed for the New York Times. What, is this the, that his personal life is incontinent? No, his private life is incontinent. His public record is inconsequential, which is just the most beautifully damning criticism. Boris Johnson is sort of seen as uh, this bumbling, unpredictable mess in very Britain. very much like Trump. I mean, from the hair down, which is... Very, pro- like very populist. Yeah, I, and I think one of the things that stood out to me the most about that article was a quote from Boris Johnson himself after he was already a public figure in which he said... I'm just kind of worried sometimes that I don't have any political opinions. Good grief. <laughs> it's your, oh, it's your job. So leaving with a deal is like your parents divorcing and coming up with a custody schedule and fairly dividing assets and, you know, figuring out shared use of the summer home. And, and somebody still wins. I mean, somebody definitely is still going to oh, get absolutely. the better deal. But at least it's amicable-ish. Jeremy Hunt, who is the, he is the uh, less favored candidate, he has said that he would agree to no deal with a heavy heart. Um, Mm. The deadline for coming, uh, for getting Parliament to agree to a deal is October 31st. Spooky. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson has said that come what may, he's going to leave deal or no deal. He's very pro-Brexit. He's, he he says that um, no matter what, they're going to leave the EU. He will bumble the country <laughs> on its way out the door. And in trying to encourage the UK in this time of complete uncertainty, he said that uh, I make a confident prediction that whatever happens on November 1st, after we've come out, the planes will fly, there will be clean drinking water, oh, and there will be way for our Mars bars. <laughs> So He's up with these blonde freaks and Mars. <laughs> Mars bars, Mars my lady. Mars and planes. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I follow uh, this guy. His Chris Shilton. He's a senior director in the UK chocolate industry. <laughs> and he tweeted, I, I disavow. Can assure, <laughs> I can assure you that according to Mars' own contingen- contingency planning, there won't be glucose, milk, solids, and whey to make UK Mars bars in the event of a no-deal Brexit. Nor you will there that? be cocoa. <laughs> 
That is so, very true. That is apt. And uh, this is just what's at stake um, if if Boris Johnson is chosen as the head of the Conservative Party. Stakes are high in either direction, and, and even wanna, if Jeremy Hunt is yeah. is chosen, it's we want to check in with well. our, our British friends over the next week or so, especially pending the result of this, and see what they have to say about it. Um, certainly, we defer to them in terms of personal experience. Of course, because we, we're, we're looking from, you know, the U.S., and, and we don't completely understand. But we can definitively say that this is a political shit show. It is. I think we can put our stamp of approval on that. Yeah, I want and I want emails from listeners. Uh, email us at um, xxexceedinglypersuasive at gmail.com or DM us if you have input on... If you are pro Brexit, if you're anti, yeah, if we'll you're scared, this yeah. Over if, the next week, um, we want to know how you feel. I mean, this is obviously a, a, a incredibly uncertain time for people for in the UK, and it's it reaches beyond the national boundaries. Absolutely. This okay. is a great transition to other political shit shows that are impending in the the coming week, and very quickly, given that Mueller's testimony will have happened by the time mm-hmm. that you hear this, looking back with you guys. These are some things to look for. A lot of people think that Mueller's decision not to decide whether Trump should be indicted or not, whether he had committed crimes, whether he obstructed justice, et cetera, et cetera, that he didn't want to pass judgment on that because there is an OLC opinion, an Office of Legal Counsel opinion, that says that a sitting president cannot be indicted. So there's that. Mueller is very tight-lipped about everything. There are actually two OLC memos. The first is from 1973. And that, of course, was in the Spiro Agnew context. So Nixon's vice president was actually the first one to get investigated in a non-Watergate context. It was actually something totally different. But in that context, the Nixon White House kind of solicited the OLC to say, well, a sitting president probably couldn't get indicted. Nothing says we've done nothing wrong like, like commissioning no you couldn't OLC. you couldn't do it i'm saying see, you can't indict me this executive office said that you you couldn't do it so it's like the house when ruled by the gop saying that it's out of order to call the president a racist right after trump was elected oh my god that's ridiculous yeah and ironically even the lawyers who worked on that OLC opinion, which said, well, the president probably couldn't get indicted. So given that we're talking about Spiro Agnew, the vice president, the vice president kind of just rides the coattails of any rights reserved to the president. So, uh, yeah, no, he can't either. Lawyers that worked on that opinion actually said we weren't entirely sure at the end of the day whether that was binding and where that opinion came out. So that's wishy-washy. There's nothing formally that says that OLC opinions are binding. The second memo was from 2000, and that was in the Bill Clinton context. And again, speaking of squeaky clean administrations, it's everybody who's looking for an out. Um, So that, again, cited the 1973 memo. It said that, yeah, 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 no, see, we have said for like 30 years that it probably couldn't happen. So don't do it. But that kind of weighs against the fact that the Supreme Court in Clinton versus Jones said that the president couldn't be immune from a civil suit. Nixon versus U.S. said that the president can't be immune from a subpoena in a criminal context. So the actual binding things that Supreme Court opinions suggest that presidents are not immune from these sort of things. And then the OLC opinions are the only very biased sources that say otherwise. Yeah, kinda. what are the teeth to these OLCs? Like, well, They've never they... really been tested. Okay. So <laughs> the, the teeth 
are legal scholars who are on the political side of whatever not indicting would be at the time. So right now, a lot of them on the right of the aisle are saying it is binding. The problem is, uh, I saw a statement by Mueller, and he said that um, when he testifies... Is that the right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. When he when he gives his testimony, he is going to give a statement, but the statement is just going to be his the redacted same. report. And I, I don't, don't know what he's going to do. I, I, he does not. I mean, he, he made it clear that he, the only reason he's testifying is because he was subpoenaed and he does not intend to give them anything that wasn't in the redacted report. So I'm not exactly the sure what they're going to squeeze from him. of where neutrality becomes taking a position. Because I really... Uh, the best. I don't think he's pro-Trump, though. I think that he just I genuinely doesn't want to get involved. I think he yeah. d- he doesn't want to be seen as anything but clear on the facts, and in doing so, he has become unclear to both sides. Didn't and he projectable. give? Didn't he pass that responsibility on to Congress to impeach? That that's what I got is that he thought that he played his role and that he passed I think that responsibility he did, on. But <laughs> saying. We are not going to recommend indictment, but if we thought there was no evidence, we would so state. That is in between the lines, and the subtext being because we're going to pass the buck on to the House. But in my opinion, hasn't he played his role? I mean, because when it comes down to it, I get the sense of frustration from Mueller. Yeah. I think he thinks that he has played his role. I think he thinks he has. And done his job, and everybody else won't do their job. And that's the sense I get. But if you want to direct... The answer is in the verbiage, because if he were to say, even though I have been commissioned to do this job, I do not think that I have the power to recommend charges, which is different than indicting himself. Recommending Mm -hmm. is different than indicting, and he didn't even take a stance on recommendation. So he's being very, very Switzerland about this, not even saying that he would recommend charges. And then he just as easily could say, this falls, in my opinion, to the House of Representatives to impeach and then to the senate to convict say it if that is what you feel if you would like to pass the buck that definitively say it and there would be plenty of defenders but but he also said that the report didn't exonerate trump but it didn't to say yeah well it doesn't say he did it but it doesn't say he didn't do it his job was to investigate that it might be that he is afraid or at least concerned that if he weighs in too strongly one way or the other, it's going to contaminate the report. I think that that's true, but it's inevitable, and this is your job. We we just, you know, spanked Ken Starr last week <laughs> for... And Ken Starr aired hard in the other direction when that was not necessary, but it is necessary this time. Especially when you think about why he's holding back, and Mueller is very close friends with William Barr. But I I don't think a case can be made that Mueller is in any way trying to protect the administration. I don't think he's trying to protect the administration, but I think he's trying to protect himself. I would say that I'm okay with someone trying to trying uh. to maintain their reputation if the if if the entire integrity of the report relies on his reputation. I think I don't know. I think that if the integrity of the report depends on him staying neutral, his whole job was to determine if he should recommend but there's no scenario in which he would have done that because it would damn him then what was the point of him serving in the first place and i'm not even saying that i that's i don't think he should be more explicit i'm just saying i understand where his concern is i guess i do for a civilian but not for somebody who's accepted this post and the purpose is to determine whether charges should be filed if there was no scenario where he ever was going to do that 
then don't accept the post. Right. And that kind of gets us to the whole impeachment thing, which is a totally different standard, high crimes and misdemeanors, which is, it's not a legal standard, it's not defined in the Constitution, and it's also kind of counterintuitive because we got high crimes, but also misdemeanors. Well, is it either or, or is it and? I don't know. <laughs> which, what another, is high modified? Another vague standard. Yeah. Ugh. Okay, well, and again, uh, this is such a difficult position I think that he's in because I do feel like he has handed the House his report to do with what you will. But it's a redacted one without a significant amount of the But the House had William Barr to give people on the House Judiciary Committee the opportunity to see the unredacted report. And those people have said, yeah, let's do it, but they can't really go a whole lot further. I think they're stuck in limbo. This is where I get cynical about it being more about political theater than actually taking action because I think that they have enough and I think that they have enough to impeach and they're just too chicken to do it. But the whole reason they're not is the reason that Mueller himself doesn't want to get involved. They know how nasty it'll get if they don't have enough information. I mean, the Senate's never going to convict. That's what it really comes down to. No, that's a very good point. Unless they have enough evidence. And that's, I think, the hinging thing. I don't think the GOP-run Senate would ever convict. Especially now that Amash isn't even a a Republican anymore. Uh, anyway, it's just, I, I, for me, I think I think of all of this as pieces, right? So they're they're each cogs in this machine that's supposed to work, and I feel like Mueller at least feels like he's done his part and has handed the baton. I'm sure he does. And now the House, instead of doing their job, in my eyes, it's like you already have enough. And I yes, don't know if they do though, because you know it's not enough. Like you know, I know that it will. I know that no matter what they have. The Senate won't convict. Do you think there's a scenario where, let's say Mueller or anybody had a piece of evidence that was so damning, so obvious, is there anything in the realm of imagination would be enough for the Republican-run Senate? Call me a cynic? No. No, I think that they have have hitched their wagon to the Trump administration. They are all so spineless and terrified of angering Trump's base that they will never never convict we don't there are not enough reasonable people in my opinion trump either goes out via election in 2020 do you think he would leave uh, i actually just think that it's a possibility part of me feels like trump genuinely wants to wash his hands of all of this and mm. be done and go back to private life but not if people think that he lost that's the thing i think what was most likely is that he will go back to private life, but the rest of his life will say it was rigged. He still says that about the popular vote because he can't even accept that he lost the popular vote. So he still says that, and that there was a widespread election fraud. This means very little to him, so. All right, guys, as usual, we have talked way longer than we thought. We love you all, and we will not keep you for a moment longer except to say Huma Abedin. Oh, yeah. Anthony Weiner was spotted either moving in or moving out of Huma Abedin's apartment, freshly released from his sentence after sexting a minor. sexting teens. All we're going to say. in my old apartment, could see the building in which he took his dick pics from my window in Forest Hills. Wow, direct connection. Yeah, seven steps to Anthony (laughs) Weiner's. Either way, we just want to, you know, the reports are varied. All we want to say is, Huma, you can do better. Are you okay? Are you okay? Blink twice. You have a son. He's already going to be so, so pretty and fucked smart. up about this. Please don't let his dad make him creepy too. Please don't let the wiener worm his way back in. Ween. Ruined your career and maybe Hillary Clinton's a little bit. 
Girl. He ain't even cute. Just don't let Anthony Weiner back in your apartment. Hoom it up, girl. All right, right, folks. Uh, You hoom it up, too, everyone. We're people who you can find on social media. I am MKZJ Brennan on Instablam and on Twitter. I'm GetMe number two, a nunnery. I am BKE Rogers on Twitter, and I am Brooke Angeline on Instagram. As always, we want to hear from you. We love reading your reviews, and we love when we get feedback from you guys. We like talking to you so much. Positive, negative, neutral. We We want to get to know you. Hang out with us. We're our only friends. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week, and we'll stay alive this week after the more testimony. All right, bye, guys. He's so fucking hot.